Good afternoon, and welcome to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for an hour each weekday <coughs> afternoon, uh, taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, uh, we're always glad to hear from you. We're also glad to hear from you if you have a difference of opinion from the host and want to discuss that. Uh, you can call. Uh, the number is 844 484 5737. That's 844-484-5737. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right. Uh, we're going to first of all talk to Ryan calling from Michigan. Ryan, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. Um, hey. My question today is um, how do you know if you've truly forgiven someone if um, if a loved one has done something terrible to you and you still harbor feelings of resentment, um, does that mean you haven't truly forgiven them? And if so, um, what would your biblical advice be to overcome the resentment? Well, resentment is a feeling, and forgiveness is a choice. So they are not um, – they don't necessarily cancel each other out. You can make a choice to forgive and still have occasional feelings – uh, that you have to, you know, bring into into line with your choice. Um, it's just like you can make a choice that you're going to be morally pure, and yet you still have to fight off, uh, you know, impure thoughts and things like that. So, I mean, a choice is one thing. Feelings are another. There's a sense in which we don't bear much in the way of responsibility for feelings. I mean, if we if we cherish evil feelings, then we certainly are to blame for that. But if we are striving to get over evil feelings, and yet they remain, well, then that's not really on us. That's what we call feelings. <laughs> feelings are, are emotions, and emotions are often uh, uh, inexplicable, frankly. I mean, sometimes we feel really sad, and we can't think of why we're sad. Other times we're feeling happy, and we're not sure why we're feeling happy. Uh, sometimes we feel somewhat angry. Uh, when there doesn't seem to be a very good reason, or, or we feel not angry when it would seem like we should. Um, it's like feelings aren't always uh, under our control. And, in fact, I believe feelings are in another category many times of temptation. Uh, the truth is that lust is a feeling, and obviously lust can be a, a temptation. Um, many feelings can be um, temptations. I mean, feeling depressed can be a temptation to, you know, uh, pity yourself or, or some other sin. Uh, so also, when you have forgiven someone, feelings of resentment may arise still. Though you have to address them, it's like what, when the psalmist said to himself, why are you cast down in my soul, hoping God? Okay, he's, he's wondering why his soul is depressed. He doesn't see any good reason for it. He says, listen, soul. Uh, you need to bring yourself into line here. You need to hope in God. And that's what we have to do sometimes. We have to address our emotions. We, uh, that doesn't mean they'll go away as soon as we do. But we have to take a stand against improper emotions and say, listen, I don't approve of that. I'm not endorsing that. I don't want that. Uh, I, I want that to go away as soon as possible. And I, there may be times I can do something about it. I may be able to... Uh, to uh, substitute it with another emotion, although that's not always, you know, emotions don't always come at our command. Uh, emotions are somewhat outside our volition, but of course, emotions will often follow 
if we take a firm commitment to something. For example, if you um, if you don't love your your wife, uh, you you don't feel love for your wife. Let's say you can demand of yourself that you will act toward her as if you did, because when you take a make when you form patterns of behavior, uh, you're also forming patterns of thinking, and so emotions can sometimes be developed. Now, if you if somebody has done something wrong to you and you you've decided to forgive them, then whenever an emotion comes up that's inappropriate like resentment toward them, you have to simply remind yourself, hey, that's not appropriate. They owe me nothing. I've canceled the debt. That's what forgiveness is. When I say I forgive somebody, it means I am giving up any right that I might have had to retaliate against them or to um, you know, punish them in my mind or to do anything like that. I have no right to do that because I've released them. It's a release of them from any duty to me. Um, and uh, so when I've made that decision, and, and again, it's like, I mean, it's easier to understand, for example, when we forgive a, a financial debt. It's really not much different in principle. But if somebody owes you money and uh, they can't pay you back and you just say, well, I'll just forgive it. You know, I'm, I'm just going to forgive that. I'm not going to ask for it back. I just forgive that debt. Now, that may happen because they come to you and ask you to forgive them, which is a little more gratifying because they're acknowledging that they do owe it to you, but they're having trouble paying it back. Or they may not come back to you and ask you to forgive, but you just decide, well, you know, I'm not hurt by the loss. Or maybe I am, but I I can survive it. And uh, I'd just rather not make this an issue anymore. And so when you forgive a debt like that, you've simply given up your right to impose it. You've given up your right to demand it. Uh, you've given up your right to resent them for not paying it back. Because if you want them to pay it back, you can't. You shouldn't forgive it. But if you forgive it, you're saying, I don't care if they pay it back or not. It's not. It's, I have no further claim on their repayment. And when if you forgive someone for gossiping against you or wronging you in some way, even doing a violent act against you, if, if you forgive them, it means that you are denying any right to yourself of resentment or, uh, you know, holding that against them. If you're going to hold it against them, then don't forgive them. If you're going to forgive them, you can't hold it. Those two things are not compatible. That doesn't mean your feelings will not come back. I mean, if you forgive somebody a financial debt, and then the next time you see them, uh, you realize that, you know, they really should have paid me back. Well, that's the time when you need to tell yourself, hey, I forgave that debt. I have no right to bring that up any further, even in my own mind. Now, that doesn't mean it won't come to your mind. It just means you recognize you have no right to have that anymore because you've, give, you've released it. Um, and therefore, I believe that uh, you simply have to say, well, I'm feeling something that is inappropriate to the reality. The reality is that's been released. Uh, the reality is they owe me nothing, and I'm acting in my mind and my emotions as if they still do. I am in the wrong. That doesn't mean they weren't in the wrong to have done what they did, but you forgave them, and now you're in the wrong if you continue to hold it against them. So uh, that's, that's really the consequence of forgiving. That's what forgiving means. So when you decide, I forgive you, you're also saying, I'm also going to fight off any inappropriate emotions that make me think toward you as if you still owe me something. Now, again, 
you can't just make your emotions go away, but you can refuse to validate them. And you can, as David did, speak to your own soul and say, hey, what are you thinking that way for? That's not right. Um, and eventually, you know, if you, if you discipline yourself in this way enough, I personally think that resentment and such feelings will eventually have to go away because they find no home. They find no welcome in you. Now, just to follow up really quick, could the feelings of resentment and just kind of the trials and maybe even thoughts, could that possibly be an attack by the devil to, you know, stop the, the carrying out of forgiveness or the following through with it? Sure, sure. I mean, uh, absolutely. Like I said, I think the emotions often uh, play the role of temptations. And uh, not always, because not all emotions are are really negative. But But when we have an emotion that's inappropriate, uh, then, of course, the question is, am I going to follow my emotions or am I going to follow what's appropriate? And uh, in that sense, the emotions are in competition with God's will for your life. And you need to simply recognize that their persistence is a, is a continuing temptation to you that you need to resist and, uh, and reject. Okay. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. Okay, Ryan. I'm sorry. Sorry you're having that. Sorry you're having those issues. We, we all do sometimes. Thanks, Steve. Take All care. right. God Bye-bye. bless you. Bye now. Uh, Carrie from Texas, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Steve, I have two questions concerning uh, Second Timothy. First okay. is, is that the last book that uh, Paul wrote? Apparently, yes. It's well, believed it seems to, be. to have a, a lot greater meaning when I read it, understanding yeah. that it's his last last book. Right, he mentions he mentions he's ready to offer himself up, and he's fought the good fight, he's finished the race, and so forth. Yeah, there in chapter four, verses six through eight. He also warns Timothy about wrangling over words. Now, I I get in Bible studies, and we tend to uh, search out the meaning of words and things like that, and I really enjoy it. Is are we wrangling? over words doing that? I think wrangling over words can, uh, or discussing and disagreeing about words can, can be profitable or unprofitable. Uh, in other words, if, if the differences that we're having over the meaning of words and therefore over the meaning of certain passages and therefore over the meaning of certain doctrines, uh, if, those, if those differences that we're having are causing uh, strife, ill will, uh, they're dividing us from other people in our hearts and, and even physically from each other, pe- other people, then that is a sinful uh, response to differences. Now, on the other hand, if people love each other, as Christ said Christians should, and they are uh, humble about their own opinions and willing to be changed if necessary, if they are uh, extending to the other person the respect and the honor of them being able to make up their own mind and not being required to agree with you, uh, if all those attitudes are present, which are all Christian attitudes, uh, then disagreements can be actually quite profitable and enjoyable. You know, it's, uh, people get angry when they disagree only when they are either proud, too proud to believe that anyone else has a right to make their own decision, 
uh, about something that you have your own strong opinions about. Or, you know, uh, and, and a corollary of that is that they don't believe the other person is as important as they themselves are. That is to say, if I think I'm more important than you, therefore you have an obligation to agree with me. And if you don't, I have an obligation to, uh, you, know, you know, change you and to, uh, and to reject you if you don't do so. Uh, see, this is, this is uh, be, being self-inflated. And um, none of us has the right to be inflated like that. Even if a, even if a person is a, a studied scholar on some subject, um, he, he, has, he or she has the right to present evidence and present the reasons for his or her beliefs to someone who's not on the same page, but does not have the right to insist that that, that person must be convinced if they are not. Um, we have to remember the... The Bible does not command us uh, to to agree with any particular one person in the church on all things. And therefore, a mature Christian, uh, or simply a loving Christian, or a humble Christian, is going to say, well, there's there's room for more than one opinion on a number of things, and this is no doubt one of them. And, uh, you know, I have reached my own opinions, and that person has the right to reach uh, his or her own opinions. But... Uh, we can discuss them, and especially if we are the type of people who enjoy progress in our own understanding. That is, iron sharpens iron, and if we happen to enjoy uh, the opportunity to hear another side that we may not have considered or evidence for another side, uh, and we don't feel threatened by it, and why would we? I mean, anyone who loves the truth should never be threatened by evidence. The truth will always have the best evidence. The truth will always have the best arguments, so we should we should wish to hear all the best evidence on on every subject, even if it makes us change our mind. But a person who loves the truth wants to change their mind when they need to. So, I mean, if a person has a mature Christian attitude, discussing differences over words is not wrangling in the sense that Paul's concerned about. Now, I don't know that Paul, uh, I mean, I don't know what kind of wrangling was being done in the church of Ephesus where Timothy was was overseen and and, uh, and where Paul tells him not to permit the wrangling, but wrangling is definitely a negative term, and it's uh, it's strife, it's argumentation, it's argument, it's being argumentative in spirit and so forth, and those things are not profitable. Those arguments, but um, to say, you know, I always thought this word meant this, and here's my reasons for thinking so, and someone else says, ah, but I, no, I understand that totally differently. Here's my reasons for thinking so. And for both parties to be uh, respecting the other person's right to have their own opinion on this and to, uh, to, to, to make their own journey to the truth uh, is simply what mature Christians do. You know, I myself, for example, some of the arguments we've had uh, with people on this show would be between um, uh, people who believe in dispensationalism and, uh, and myself. Which I, I, but I used to be a dispensationalist, and I, I made the journey. Uh, to where I am now from dispensationalism very gradually from my own studies in the scripture. And I, it was point by point here, a little there, a little line upon line, precept upon precept. And eventually, after several years, my view had shaped uh, into something else. Now, when I'm talking to a dispensationalist, I, f- I fully expect them not to agree with me right away. And I wouldn't have agreed with me when I was a dispensationalist. Uh, it's a journey. I had to, I, you know, there are things, hurdles you have to get over there, uh, insights you have to gain. There are, 
you know, um, steps to take in the journey. And, uh, and I, I would grant other people the same, you know, um, right to make those steps at their own rate or not make them at all if they don't find them to be persuasive. Um, I don't, I don't expect anyone to require me to believe what they do if I'm not persuaded of their points. And I can't, I can't, I, I can't expect anyone else to be agreeable with me if they're not persuaded of my points. Um, you are to do to others as you would have done to you. And, and you certainly want people to give you the freedom to reach your own conclusions and, your, and follow your own conscience. Well, then you have to extend that to others. When you have that attitude, that doesn't mean you won't discuss or even argue over certain points. It just means you will do so in the spirit of, hey, let's, let's search this out. Maybe I can persuade you. Maybe you can persuade me. Maybe neither of us will be persuaded by the other. But there's a good chance that we will have a better understanding of each other and each other's positions after such an argument takes place. But nothing about this argument is, uh, is going to provide a foundation for our continuing uh, peaceable relation with each other. Now, that's, that's simply, that's not what Paul's forbidding when he talks about wrangling over words. He's talking about wrangling, that, that means strife, um, where in fact what I'm describing is not strife, but simply, you know, attempts to educate each other uh, out of charity to each other and without the arrogance of thinking that that person has to come around to my side. Thanks a lot, Steve. Okay, Kerry. Good talking to you, brother. Thanks for calling. David from Camarillo, California. Well, welcome. Hey, Steve. How's everything? Good. Steve, I have a question about uh, Psalms 2, uh-huh. verse 1 and verse 2. Well, okay. we could go on about the whole of uh, Psalms 2, but I just have a question about the two verses. That, uh, well, just the one verse, I should say, verse 1. It says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? So it's talking about two different types of people here. It's talking about the heathen, which in the strong concordance is goy, and the people, a community, essentially. I'm assuming that is the children of Israel. I would agree. What is the vain thing, though, that they uh, rage and imagine? Oh, you, it, it, you, yeah, you, you, to get that answer, you have to look at the rest of the paragraph. It says, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Now, they're plotting to do something, but they're plotting in vain, meaning it's not going to work. They might as well not even bother. They're wasting their effort because it's, it's a vain effort. What is? Well, he says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Now, bonds and cords refer to restrictions and and bondage. And they're saying, listen, God and his Messiah, because that's what the word, um, uh, his anointed in verse 2, is the word Messiah. By the way, the the apostles quote this verse in Acts chapter 4, and they actually quote it as Messiah or Christ, which is the same word. So they're saying uh, God, Yahweh, and his Messiah are trying to restrict us. They're trying to rule us. They're trying to keep us in bondage. They're trying to bring us under their dominion. 
And we don't want that. We're going to cast away their cords. We're going to break those bonds, and we're going to be independent of them, and we're going to get rid of them. And and the writer says, that's kind of a stupid thing they're doing. It's vain. They shouldn't try that. You know, they're fighting against God, and you, know, you can't win when you're doing that. And he says, of course, uh, in verse uh, 6, well, verse, frankly, 4 through 6, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Yahweh will hold them in derision. He speaks to them in his wrath and, and distress them in his deep displeasure. And here's what he says. Yet, or in spite of your efforts, yet I have set my king, the Messiah, on my holy hill of Zion. So God is saying, okay, so you thought you're going to unseat my Messiah. You thought you're going to break his bonds and chains off of you and, and live in rebellion instead of in submission. Well, good luck on that. Despite all of your puny efforts, my king is here, sitting on the throne still. You have not unseated him. Therefore, the effort to, to unseat him is, was definitely a vain effort and a fool's errand. And that's, that's what that he's talking about in that psalm. All right, let's talk to Joshua from New Hampshire. Joshua, welcome. Hey, Steve. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, my dad uh-huh. actually introduced you to your show, so I just want to shout out to my dad if he's listening. Um, right. My question is about Job. Mm-hmm. And um, so the question is, why does God not rebuke Elihu at the end along with Job's three other friends? You know, that's, that's a really hard question to answer because uh, it, it actually has caused... Uh, some scholars to think that the speeches of Elihu were added after the book was completed because uh, it, it, when, when God shows up and does rebuke Job's counselors, uh, he only really re- rebukes the three who've been talking through most of the book. And Elihu kind of shows up at the very after they're silenced when they can't answer anymore. Elihu shows up and gives his series of speeches, and frankly, he doesn't sound much different than the rest of them. I mean, his arguments sound very similar to theirs. There might have been a slight, um, what shall we say, might have been a, a, a slight edge of humility in his that isn't in the others. Now, most commentators say that Elihu, when he shows up, he sounds like an arrogant young man. Now, the other guys apparently are older, because when Elihu shows up, he says, I, you know, I haven't spoken to now because you guys are older, and I thought age should speak. I'm just a young guy. Who am I to speak up? But then he goes on and gives his speeches and sounds a, a lot like the other guys uh, in his assessment of Job's situation. Um, and, you know, some people say, well, he's just as arrogant as the rest. <clears throat> Perhaps the reason he was not rebuked, uh, assuming his speeches are an original part of the book of Job, which I assume to be the case, um, it may be because of his saying these things, of his saying that, you know, he is a younger man. He has wanted to let the older people speak. And he has been formulating an opinion while listening to them. And now he's going to give his opinion, which may not be any more enlightened than the opinion of the others. But at least he's given it more with an air of humility, more of a, more of a, uh, a sense that maybe as a young man, uh, he doesn't really have it all together, uh, but he's still giving the, the insight as best he sees it. It's a difficult question you ask, a good one, actually, but, uh, and scholars have wrestled with it, too. Why, why, don't, why doesn't God, at the end, in chapter 42, rebuke Elihu with the rest of them? It, uh, 
you know, again, in my opinion, he doesn't say much different than what the others say. He says, I guess he has his own way of saying it. But the fact that he sees himself as one who felt like he should wait till last, weigh what others said, give his opinion next, um, you know, the fact that he's not rebuked doesn't mean that he was closer to the truth than the others were, because I'm not sure that he was. But, um, but rather that perhaps he was more slow to speak, uh, more willing to listen, uh, maybe hadn't really figured out the answer to the question yet himself, but was sharing uh, with, as it were, some disclaimers. You know, I'm young, who am I to know these things? And it may be that, that little bit of humility that caused him to get a pass and not to be rebuked for what he said. The other guys were really quite sure of themselves. I mean, they were very, to my mind, they were very arrogant. And even when Job didn't agree with them, they, were, they became abusive to him, you know. And I don't see Elihu doing that. Right. All right, great. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. Okay, Joshua. Thanks for your call. Good talking to you. Okay, Mike from Cool, California. Hi, Mike. Welcome. Hi, Steve. First of all, thanks for taking my call. And well, for, let, let me interrupt you. Let me, let me interrupt here because I just noticed uh, we're going to be cut off here by the break. Let me hold on to your call and hold that thought, and we'll take it okay. right after right after the break. All right. Uh, you're listening to the Narrow Path Radio Broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg. If this is the first time you've heard the program, uh, it certainly isn't our first rodeo. We've been doing this daily for 27 years. And every day that we've been on the air, that I've been live, which is most of the time, we've been taking questions. That's all we do. I don't have a monologue at the beginning. I don't pick any subjects. It's just open Q&A, just like you're hearing today. And it's commercial-free. Now, we do buy time on the radio stations all over the country, and it's very expensive, but we don't sell anything or, or uh, even sell time to sponsors. We are listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, you can write to The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or go to the website, thenarrowpath.com, where everything's free, but you can donate there. I'll be back in 30 seconds. The Narrow Path is on the air due to the generous donations of appreciative listeners like you. We pay the radio stations to purchase the time to allow audiences around the nation and around the world by way of Internet to hear and participate in the program. All contributions are used to purchase such airtime. No one associated with The Narrow Path is paid for their service. Thank you for your continued support. Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. <laughs> You're listening to the Narrow Path. My name is Steve Gregg. We have open lines for use, a couple of them. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, or, or you see things differently than the host and want to say so, and tell us why, uh, the number to call is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. Okay, just before the break, we started to talk to Mike from Cool, California, and then I noticed the break was upon us, so we put him on hold. You're back. Uh, you've got uh, time to go ahead and share what you've called about. Okay, 
Okay, first of all, I so enjoyed your Q&A in Auburn on Monday night. And thank you. I just want to thank you so much for the book. Oh, but were you the one? You were one of the ones. You're one of the ones that got a free book. I was the first one to get the free book. Okay, you ran okay. out to your car and grabbed it. I remember. I remember meeting you. Yes, good. Go ahead. So, I know throughout the Bible we're called to have faith unto death, to the very end. So, I was just wondering, reading through Second Thessalonians, of course, chapter two, where Paul talks about the great falling away, the great apostasy, do you think that could be caused by people? Now, I lean post-trib. So I look at it as people who were in that situation, who were going through the hard times of tribulation, who gave up their faith due to the what was going on in their lives in that situation. You mean, well, well, yeah, no, I think so. I think so. I mean, that's, of course, uh, if, you know, if in end time difficulties people give up their faith, um, they're really kind of of the same class as people throughout history who've given up their faith in troubles. Right. Now, there may be exceptional troubles right near the end, but life has been full of troubles for 6,000 years. You know, that's one thing Job said, man is born to trouble just like sparks fly upward from a fire. I mean, it's, it's that natural. But you, you come into the world as a man or a woman, and you're going to have trouble just as surely as this fire is going to send up its sparks uh, upward. So, uh, you know, and, and, and this is proven to be true. Now, uh, Christians in the West, and especially in America, have, uh, you know, the last 70 years or more since World War II, have had probably the most peaceful run uh, of history. Uh, as any people living anywhere ever did in the world. We've had, uh, we really haven't had war uh, in our lifetime on our shores. Um, we haven't had a bubonic plague taking out half the population, as some countries in Europe did some time ago, uh, hundreds of years ago. Uh, we really haven't, uh, we haven't got the discomforts of a pre-technological society. We've got more comforts, more advantages, more wealth, than any people uh, of any time previously. Uh, now, that being so, we are spoiled and soft. And when someone says, well, you know, you might have to give up your life for, your, for Christ. Or maybe if you, don't, if you don't die, you might have to be imprisoned. You might have to be beaten. You might have to be tortured. Uh, you know, what people are telling you is that you might have to go through what all Christians have had to face throughout history because those millions of Christians have died for their faith over the, over the centuries. Millions of Christians have been imprisoned and beaten and, and tortured. Uh, we somehow feel that because we haven't been, that we are entitled to some kind of exemption from that kind of thing. And so uh, this is why a doctrine like the pre-tribulation rapture has flourished in, uh, in frankly, post-World War II America, and, I mean, it existed before World War II, but it has especially taken over the, the theological uh, field um, in times where we all believe, you know, we're not supposed to suffer. You know, I mean, so many people even argue for a pre-trib rapture by saying uh, God would never allow his church to go through that. He'd never allow his bride to suffer like that. I think, boy, are these people provincial. Uh, you know, I mean, 
uh, you know, right now in China, North Korea, and many, many other countries in the world, Christians are imprisoned and tortured and dying and have been almost incessantly from the time of Christ till now. And suddenly someone lives in such a, a, an easy life, such a pampered life as we have here, that they would actually listen to an argument that says, God would never let his bride go through that kind of thing. They think, well, maybe you ought to learn something about your faith. Learn something about Jesus. He went through that. The apostles went through that. Christians always go through that. I mean, not always, because there are some Christians like us who've lived in very unusual periods of history where that kind of thing has been minimal. Although Christians in this country have also suffered persecution of sorts, it just hasn't been as intense. But, uh, yeah, I think that lots of people who, who lose their faith uh, do so because of difficulties. And, and that those who have been told that they're going to be raptured before the worst times come are particularly vulnerable. I'm not saying they'll all lose their faith. I, I, I've heard people suggest, well, those people who believe in a preacher of rapture, they'll all lose their faith when, when, the, when the Antichrist comes and starts cutting heads off. Well, I don't, I don't think that all pre-tribbers are such fake Christians as that. I mean, I, I believe many wonderful, true, committed Christians, more than willing to die for their faith, also are convinced of the pre-trib rapture. You know why I know that? Because I was. I was convinced of the pre-trib rapture in my early years, and I was ready to die. I, I actually thought it'd be a glorious privilege to die for my faith rather than to just die meaninglessly. And there are lots of Christians have died for many missionaries who've gone overseas and been killed for their faith, and they knew they might, were dispensationalists. I mean, they were pre-tribbers. Uh, so, you know, that the fact that someone believes in the pre-trib rapture does not mean that they're not ready to die for Jesus or that they'll give up their faith if things get rougher than they expect. But I will say that the pre-trib rapture doctrine is attractive to people who would lose their faith if things got worse. That doesn't mean everyone in that camp is that weak. But people who are that weak are drawn to that camp. And so I do believe you'll find many people who've been given a false hope that they will be, they'll be escaping before things get rough. Uh, and, but, but they're not really committed to Christ. They're committed to their own selves. They're committed to their own exemptions from hardship and so forth. And when those exemptions do not, are not delivered to them, uh, then they probably will be among those who quickly do lose their faith. Okay, well, thank you so much. That's just the way I was seeing it. And when he calls it the great falling away, I thought, boy, all of a sudden a bunch fall away. What would cause that? Well, yeah. you know, when, as they say, when things get tough, you know, people tend yeah. to uh, give up. Well, also, when things get tough, God gives grace to those who are committed to him. And uh, right. they, they end up, uh, you know, in a sense, being tougher than they ever dreamed it possible because of the miraculous assistance God gives. Right. Well, Mike, I appreciate your call, bro. Thank you. Have a blessed day. You too. God bless you. All right. Aaron from uh, Urbandale, Iowa. Welcome to The Narrow Path. Hi, Steve. Thanks for taking my call. I have been a Trinitarian. I'm 46 years old. I've been a Trinitarian almost all my life. Uh -huh. I've read the verses recently. I've read through the Bible several times now, and some of the verses that are used to support it seem a little bit nebulous or don't go all the way toward saying that Jesus is a God. Fair enough. Um, do you consider Unitarianism a heresy uh, as long as you're taking the Bible seriously? 
And then um, right. the second thing would be things like John 17:3, where it seems to distinguish God from Jesus, and not not just the Father and the Son, but Jesus and God Himself, because it says, um, "And this is eternal life that." They know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, yeah, is Unitarian a heresy, and what do you make of John seventeen three? Thank you. All right. Oh, sure. Thank you. Um, well, for those who don't know, Unitarianism is kind of uh, the opposite of Trinitarianism. Trinitarianism is the belief that God is three persons in one uh, substance, in one God. Unitarianism is that God is only one. God is he's not divisible into three. And and therefore they don't believe that Jesus is God. They see a distinction between Jesus and the Father, which truly there is such a distinction. And they say, well that distinction then rules out him being actually God because there's only one God and if Jesus uh you know is in some sense called God, it must be in a different sense, because he's not, there, there's only one God, and they don't see him as existing in three persons like Trinitarians do. So this is, this is a very different uh, way of looking at Jesus and, and, and God in general. Now, to say, is that a heresy? First of all, I want to say what I think about the word heresy. I think the word heresy is thrown around a great deal by people uh, who have uh, who are overconfident in their views about something or another, and they meet Christians who don't share their views. And if they're if they are alarmed or uh, whatever by by this difference, I mean, they they often will call the other person a heretic. And sometimes that other person might indeed be a heretic. I mean, there is such a thing as heresy, but I believe it's much too easy to use that word when it doesn't when it doesn't fit. Now. I would like to reserve the word heresy as much as possible. I might fall into as much as, not as much, but like other people do, into calling something a heresy that doesn't fit this definition I'm about to give you. But um, heresy usually means that some council of bishops has gathered and decided on a controversy that the correct view is A, but somebody over here still believes in B, and uh, and B was not approved by the council, and therefore A is considered to be orthodoxy, and B is considered to be heresy. Now, in the Bible, the word heresy seemed to refer to people who were divisive, people who held doctrines different than the apostles did, and were willing to divide the church over those differences. Uh, that appears to be the use of the word heresy in Scripture. Now, after the councils began to resolve some of these conflicts, as they, as they thought, um, in the 4th century, uh, heresy simply meant someone who didn't hold the, the view that the latest council had declared to be the correct view. Now, of course, the Trinity was hammered out uh, at, at the Nicene Council and, and perfected later on in a few other councils, and um, and therefore, the Trinity is considered to be orthodoxy. And people who don't hold it, if somebody holds, uh, for example, Unitarianism or Arianism or something like that, uh, they would be called a heretic uh, in the historical sense of the word. Um, in, in other words, they disagree with what, you know, 
consular Christianity has has identified as orthodoxy. In that sense, yes, Unitarianism would would fall into the term heresy. I think some of my views would too. I'm not sure how many of them because I don't I don't go to the councils to learn my views. And in some cases, there have been so many of these councils that I don't even know what they all say. I do know that one view of mine has been called heresy by some later council, but um, it's to my mind it's you know it doesn't disturb me because they multiplied councils so much that they began to decide all kinds of strange things that aren't even clear in the Bible, but because the church became addicted to nailing down minor issues and excluding those who didn't believe as as they did. And uh, that attitude I don't really even think is a good one. I will say this about Unitarianism. I do believe it's false. I do believe the Trinity doctrine is true. I don't believe that the Trinity doctrine is as clear as day in the Scriptures. I believe that the Trinity doctrine is uh, drawn from the Scriptures by taking the whole counsel of God and, and I believe, reasonably synthesizing it into a theological proposition, namely that God is, in a sense, one God, and in another sense, he's three, and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are those three. Now, that is a Trinitarian statement, though I, I, I would not go to the mat over uh, whether the, the, the council's formulation of the doctrine is as good as can be, because I don't know. I mean, frankly, the Bible doesn't directly address the subject of the Trinity. It is something that we, it took the church 300 years even to come down to a relatively unanimous opinion about it. And even then, it wasn't unanimous. After, after the Trinity became orthodoxy, there were still whole countries, Germany, for example, where the churches were mostly not Trinitarian for another 100 years. So it took a while for all Christians to come around to being Trinitarian. Now, that means that until they did, and we're talking now until well into the 5th century, uh, you know, there were lots of Christians who didn't go along with the councils on some of these points. Now, we would have to say, we'd have to call them heretics in the sense that they were not holding the orthodox doctrines. But if we mean by heretics people who can't be saved, well, then we're going far beyond what any scriptural statement says, because the Bible says that those who believe on Christ, those who acknowledge his lordship, those who believe that God raised him from the dead, those who recognize him as the son of God, and who are his followers and trust in him, that's what saves a person. And there are people in heretical camps, by the definition I was speaking of before, that actually do believe all those things and actually do follow Christ. So, unfortunately... The church through the ages has uh, evolved into an institution that determined who could be saved and who could not by how many of the councils a person agreed with. Whereas salvation in the Bible never was about agreeing with any councils. It was about following Christ. And therefore, uh, no council, in my opinion, has any uh, competence to pronounce that someone who disagrees with some controversial doctrine that wasn't even nailed down to the fourth century, uh, you know, for the whole church to agree with, uh, you know, that if, if it took the church three or four centuries to come to agreement on it, it must not be the clearest thing in the Bible, right? I mean, if it was clear, it wouldn't take that long. 
And I think anyone who's honest will say the Trinity is not clear in the Bible. It is, I believe, true, but I don't believe it's clear. And it's sufficiently unclear that I think people can make mistakes about, about that subject while seeking to follow the Bible. In this respect, I'm a little more generous than many Trinitarians on this matter. Uh, I don't believe anyone is saved or lost by their decision to agree with this or that council of the bishops. Um, and I do believe there are people who love and follow Jesus like the disciples did without knowing that he was God. He is God, but they didn't know that right away. They learned that gradually. That was something that, that they, they eventually caught on to, but the three years or so that they walked with him, they didn't know that. Uh, we know they didn't know that because of things they said about him, that they didn't quite understand that he was God, and, and they can't be blamed. I don't know that he ever told them that he was. But I think when the Holy Spirit came, he did reveal to the church certain things that the apostles had not earlier known. And uh, and frankly, I think, I think we are, are benefited by that. But um, as far as John uh, 17.3, this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Uh, this is not an anti-Trinitarian text. Uh, Jesus, God, there's only one true God. And he sent Jesus. And that's what Trinitarians believe. Uh, now, Jesus was a man, the God man. He was, he was uh, God uh, sticking his finger into human nature and revealing himself in a human form. As such, just like if I stick my finger into a fish tank, uh, the fish can see only my finger. It's me. It's me they're seeing, but there's a lot more me outside that they're not seeing. You know, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But in the same chapter, he said, the Father is greater than I. Well, of course. The Father isn't uh, restricted to that, that local manifestation that existed when he showed up on earth as a member of the human family. But he, he existed outside of that, too. Just like when, you know, he appeared as a pillar of cloud over the tabernacle. That was God there, manifested. But God existed everywhere else in the universe, too, at the same time. You know, there's such a thing as God's manifest presence distinguished from his universal presence. And God, on some occasions, did in history manifest himself among us. He manifested himself to Moses in a burning bush or to the Israelites in a cloud or uh, Jacob as a wrestling contestant. Or Abraham, I believe, as, as Melchizedek. Some don't take that view to be the case, but he certainly appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18.1 and, uh, you know, as a human form. So God, on occasions, does show up and manifest his presence on earth. We, we well, regard that as the manifest presence of God. But the, at the same moment that he's manifested in that local county, he's everywhere, too. He's, his universal presence is not diminished. When Jesus came, God manifested himself. That's the term that the Bible uses. He was manifested in the flesh. Uh, that's the manifest presence of God in a human body among us. But he was everywhere at once, too, and therefore much greater than that local manifestation. So Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But he could say, the Father is greater than I. Now, this, this is hard for us, but, but it is possible, not only possible, but normative in the New Testament to speak of the Father and the Son separately, or to speak of God, meaning the Father, and the Son, separately. This is not the only place. John 7, 17, 3 is one place 
There are quite a few other places where Paul and others do exactly the same thing. But the fact that they also, all of them, say that Jesus is God, uh, you know, can't be ruled out because of these kinds of statements. What has to be determined is in what sense is it saying he is God, and in what sense is he being distinguished from God. And in my mind, the Trinitarian formulation is the best for answering that question. Others don't think so. Now, if a person becomes Unitarian, I believe they're mistaken. Uh, if they're honestly mistaken because they simply don't have the capacity to understand, uh, you know, paradoxical uh, features of the manifestation of, of Christ in, in the world, uh, I mean, God will have to decide what to do about that. I don't think people go to hell just because they don't understand the truth on something that nobody fully understands. Uh, God is not going to take to heaven only the most brilliant people and the, and the people who aren't smart and can't sort out theology or those millions of Christians throughout history who never even had a Bible of their own, so they never had the choice to sort it out. God has never saved people on, the, on their full understanding of things. He saves people because their heart is his. But if someone's heart is his, then they will be seeking to understand God the best they can. And if the best they can isn't quite well enough, I mean, I, I don't speak infallibly for God, I never claim to, but in my opinion, as I know God uh, and understand God, I don't think he sends people to hell just because they weren't clever enough to sort it all out. He's looking at their heart and their, and their actions. That's, that would be the way I see the matter. Okay, let's talk to Ronnie from Maine. Ronnie, welcome. Thanks for taking my call, Steve. Sure. My question is about the phrase, at the end of the age of the church, and that was a question addressed to me, and I couldn't find it anywhere in the Bible, so uh, you might know yeah. for that, no, phrase. that phrase. That phrase does not exist. That phrase does not exist in Scripture. The end of the age right. is a term that does exist in Scripture. It's found in uh, uh, Matthew that. 13. Matthew 13, about the, the story of the wheat and the tares and the story of the dragnet. And it's also found, of course, in the disciple. The questions asked in Matthew 24, 3. But they don't say the age of the church, just the end of the age. So we are the church and we are eternal. Is it, that's correct, would, would you say? The, the body of Christ is eternal, to be sure. And if we okay. are members of Christ, then we're in, in that body, in that church, yes. Okay. So that clarifies my question, and I appreciate that. All right. Well, God bless you. I appreciate your call. Let's talk to Dean from Index, Washington. Dean, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. In Hi. your lectures on the millennium, you mentioned a chart that you gave students on prophetic fulfillment in Scripture. Is uh -huh. that available for download or copy? I'm pretty sure you can find it online at um, Matthew713.com. Matthew713.com. I'm not looking up right now because I don't, I don't multitask. I can't talk and, and uh, you know, look up stuff online at the same time. So um, I think it'd be under charts. There is a, there's notes. There's a section of notes there, including my eschatology notes. It's, it belongs to that set of notes, but I, it might... It might be posted as a separate item under the category of charts. But um, I, I refer to it as the kingdom chart. 
because it's part of the kingdom age prophecies of the Old Testament. And what it does, by the way, if you don't find it there, email me and I'll send it to you. I can send it to you by email, but I, I, I hope it's posted there. If it's not, you can write to me at steve at the narrowpath.com and ask for it. But it's called the kingdom chart. Uh, what it does is it, it points out that there are many passages in the Old Testament prophets about the messianic kingdom. That is the age that the Messiah would inaugurate and reign over. And, uh, and I believe all the passages in the Old Testament that speak of the kingdom are talking about the same thing. So it makes it rather simple, rather than saying, well, some of them are talking about one kingdom and some about another kingdom. I believe the Messianic kingdom is one thing that, the, that was the theme of these prophets. And therefore, though they return to it in many different passages, I think they're always referring to the same era. Now, the, dis- the, the difference of opinion among Christians is whether this kingdom age began at the first coming of Christ or whether it will begin when Jesus comes back. Uh, all agree that it's the coming of Jesus that inaugurates this, but some think it's the first coming, and some think it's the second. Those who think it's the second coming are premillennial. They believe that when Jesus comes back, he will set up that kingdom, and it'll be the millennium. Those who believe it was his first coming are either amillennial or postmillennial. They believe that the age of, uh, that we're living in is that age, that Jesus, when he died, rose, and ascended to the throne of God, began to reign over that kingdom. And that all those passages in the Old Testament are referring to the present age. Now, uh, what, what this chart shows is it takes these passages, mentions their features, and points out what the New Testament says about each of these things, and reaches the conclusion that the kingdom began when Jesus came the first time, and is not awaiting his second coming at all. It is actually that he's reigning now, and we enter his kingdom when we become Christians and when we uh, embrace his lordship. Anyway, yeah, if, if you don't find it at Matthew713.com, it, uh, my wife just was looking for it. She couldn't find it, so maybe it's not there. Go ahead and email me, steve at thenarrowpath.com. Ask for the kingdom chart. I'll send it. You've been listening to The Narrow Path. My name is Steve Gregg. Uh, you can go to our website and see how you can help us out. We are listener-supported. The website is thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us.